Welcome to part two of Is Santa Claus Real? A Psychohistory of Christmas by Dr. Julian D. Michaels. So continuing from the previous hour of this episode, we were talking about the connections between Santa Claus and some of these traditions of mind-altered mysticism during the closing of the year. Now we spoke about the Kalash people and about the Shaivic traditions of India. And these, these kind of uh, intoxicated mystic traditions are found, of course, all over the ancient world. And the connection to Santa Claus has been receiving some uh, growing attention in recent years. This recent attention has been focused on a conflux of symbols that seem to point to an association between jolly old Saint Nick and uh, a particular species of mind-altering mushroom that grows throughout much of Eurasia. These mushrooms are not the psilocybe that uh, are today typically referred to as magic mushrooms, but rather a red and white-capped variety, a different species, called Amanita muscaria which has been used by many cultures throughout history for traditional entheogenic purposes. So Amanita muscaria, also known as fly agaric, fell out of popular use because it is um, rather toxic, potentially dangerous, and it tends to create a more feverish and elevated kind of experience that is not necessarily relaxing or pleasant. Uh, in fact, there's some suggestion that Amanita muscaria was the primary trigger medicine or in inducing medicine used by the famous Norse berserkers of Scandinavia. Um, so modern ideas of berserker or going berserk are usually, usually associated with kind of an out-of-control rage or... Um, or craziness, but it's probably more accurate to imagine the berserkers as a class of shamanically trained warrior priests who are adept in the use of plant substances like Amanita. Berserker can be translated literally as bear vest or bear skinned, and this is likely a reference to a kind of animal totem tradition used by such warrior priests who during such trance states, battle trances as they're called, could take on the consciousness of the, of the bear. Not just, not just in the sense of, of taking him out as kind of an inspiration, but rather in a deeper sense of with the help, most likely in most cases, with the help of the plant medicine, really entering into a trance where one becomes the bear. Uh, with a similar kind of ferocity, fearlessness, and even potentially increased strength and so on, endurance. Now, this may seem outlandish from the modern perspective, it may seem like a fantasy, but these kind of traditions, this overlap between warrior adepts and animal shamans is not unique to the Norse. One actually finds examples of this, this kind of ecstatic warrior priest throughout much of the ancient world. And in many cases, these examples are connected to the use of mind-altering substances. Now, even today, if we look at the traditional martial arts world, we find practitioners and disciplines constantly referring to animal movements and, and styles, like such as in Gong Fu, but in many other traditions. Now, we tend to imagine today that um, that the use of these kind of substance of, of of psychedelics is kind of a meditative practice, where one and a peaceful practice. And these days, that's the that is the case. But in in its traditional use, substances like this were connected to all kinds of actualization of human potentials, to opening up possibility for what the human could become, which is related to training, right? Um, so we still have, of course, physical training, but the idea that one could achieve 
non-ordinary capabilities through the change of consciousness, partly induced by mystical practices and partly induced potentially by entheogenic practices, that is the use of mind-altering substances, and that such use could translate not just to sitting mystically, but to taking on in the body, to learning, to learning how to take on in the body uh, more than human, more than human ability, or other than human ability. That's something that has largely been lost. But what we find in these ancient traditions, including the berserkers, but actually we find it in many old traditions, is that these things are all are all there together. That the use of such substances, the the shamanic or mystical practices, and in in some of these cases, the mastery of the body as a athletic or a warrior mastery that we find these all together in some of these traditions so these days um, contemporary athletic drug use has shifted more towards uh, muscle building right towards the use of steroids but uh, who knows maybe one of these days the um, organizations like the olympics will have to start considering whether it's worthwhile to screen for the use of mind-altering substances. It's possible. If that happens, I'll take it as a good sign that the um, psychedelic renaissance has, uh, has really thrived. Um, and, you know, that it's probably, a, it's certainly, certainly a much healthier and more, to me, more interesting um, avenue of, of the question of using drugs for performance enhancement rather than just just pumping the body full of chemicals, we're talking here about exploring the edges of what's possible for consciousness through the body. So Amanita was in the ancient world considered very well suited for this type of practice, partly because, probably much better suited than something like psilocybin, right? It's probably a better mushroom for warriors like the berserkers, partly because it's known for these feverish and kind of agitated effects. It's an upper um, in this sense. But it could also be used for introverted mystical practices. Everything, everything depends on intention, right? So such, um, such introverted mystical practices do seem to have been the more typical application of the shamans in places like Siberia and Lapland, who had a long and traditional relationship with these, these red caps in the forest, and they collected them and dried them and then primarily used them during the snowy winter months, which are a traditional time for this kind of engagement, this kind of activity, partly because it's the darker and more introverted time of the year when there's not so much to do in the outer world, not so much business to take care of. I mean, you might have very long nights, you know, in those snow-covered huts. So this is, this is what we'd find at this conflux of the snowy season in the north, and shamanic people's traditional relationships with entheogens. And this is the kind of place that some of these emerging theories are saying that the image of Father Christmas might have started in its, in its origin, might have, might have started growing up like a mushroom, you know, out from the snow. And so while this, while this specific association, that is the association between Santa Claus and Amanita muscaria, which if you look that up now, you'll find lots of articles now about this this association, but the fact is, it remains hypothetical. It's an unproven association. We don't know whether that, how much of that association is really um, has any has grounding in history. But the level of detail one finds in its correspondences are very interesting. So Amanita muscaria grows under snow-covered pine trees, just like little red and white Christmas presents, right? Little packages waiting under the Christmas tree. It's often it's you know traditionally very often collected and distributed to the people by what you could call traditional shamanic elders wearing their ceremonial winter regalia. They bring it to the they bring it to the people in their boots and their furs, you know, just like Santa Claus. And in those dark winter huts at night, where the winter stories are traditionally told, the ancient myths told, visions of the fairies and elves are very likely. <laughs> To unfold in the dark of those huts, in the imagination of the of the people at night, especially if Santa's little psychedelic helpers might be there too. Now one could also turn here to another symbol of Christmas, which is the reindeer. And of course, the reindeer are very important in the lives of the traditional Siberians and Laplanders. Reindeer 
are known to love the Amanita muscaria mushrooms and they eat it whenever they can. They don't just, they don't do this for nutrition or something. They do this because they like the effects, which it turns out is a very common phenomenon in parts of the animal world. You know, goats in particular are known as some of the, um, the greatest trippers of the animal world. They, goats will take, will take almost any, almost any psychedelic they can find and they're very passionate about it. So it's interesting that in the, this example of the shaman of the Kalash previously given, we find that he's a goat man and he's distributing traditional psychedelics of the Kalash people. And here in the Laplander example and the Siberian example, we again find what appears to be this traditional shamanic figure who is in this case also, you know, seems to be associated with the, the psychedelic mushroom and is connected to the reindeer, who also loves the psychedelic mushroom. So it's probably not a coincidence that shamanic figures, and these are just two examples, but it's very common, these shamanic figures are borrowing so much symbolism from these kind of animals, from animals like these. It's possible, it's maybe even likely, that the earliest shamans might have learned about the mind-altering plants and mushrooms by watching these kind of animals look for them and enjoy them. Now, this, this idea, this theory, receives a certain amount of support by the fact that there's a common Siberian tradition that involves the collecting and ingesting of the urine of the Amanita-loving reindeer. That is, the deer would eat the mushroom and then would urinate. The, the urine would freeze in the snow. And then the shaman, or the people, could go and collect this you know, frozen urine, and then ingest that, which still has, it's still psych psychotropic. It still has the psychedelic effects of the mushroom, but has the advantage of having filtered out some of the toxins that are present in the raw Amanita muscaria, which as we've discussed, can be uh, difficult and, and somewhat dangerous to take in its raw form. So this practice, because it has this advantage of filtration, seems to have evolved in certain places to the practice of the villagers or the shamanic apprentices drinking the, the urine, the Amanita urine, of the human shaman, who can provide the same service of filtration. <laughs> so this is a very specific form of a kind of direct spiritual transmission, you might say. Now, sensations and images of floating and of flight are very common in uh, mystical and visionary states of consciousness. And this is regardless of the specific tradition or culture. We find this all over the world. People all over the world in all different traditions know for a fact that shamans or sorcerers and such the like, they can sometimes fly, right? This is, this is universal. Now, in Sanskrit, if we want to look again at like the yogic tradition, this is called uh, Vimana, and it's associated with, uh, it's, a, it's a particular yogic mastery or superpower, the, the power of flight, Vimana. And this is referenced um, by a particular yoga pose called Vimanasana. Now, um, it's important to note that in, in these yogic traditions, asana or physical postures are only the very, the very beginning of these, this ancient yoga. Um, yogic mastery in the ancient sense is closer to the kinds of ecstatic states and transformations of consciousness that, we're, that I'm discussing here. In this sense, it's very close to traditional shamanism. The, the, the traditional yoga is much closer to, to traditional shamanism than it is to contemporary asana practices. But the thing is, in the modern world, it's much easier to show off a flexible body and a graceful asana practice than it is to show off a genuine mastery of inner states of consciousness. <laughs> it's harder to put those up on YouTube. So if a person has bought in to these kind of modern ideas that dreams and imagination and so forth are something for children, are unreal, then understanding this deeper kind of magic things like flight, vimana, and so forth, as events in consciousness can seem like a disappointment, disillusionment from the idea of literal magic, 
But this isn't where it's important that we to understand that if we take, if we take imagination, if we take dream, if we take soul seriously, then abilities within these realms do not have to be any less extraordinary than literal levitation. Indeed, they might be more, it might be more useful. It might ultimately be more useful to be able to master one's inner state than it is to, say, literally walk on water. So in this sense, flying shamans and their flying steeds, horses, and so on, they're not a new image. Uh, Mircea Eliade, famous anthropologist, wrote a great deal about such shamanic flight in his books. Of course, we know in mythology that many gods and demigods can fly. Odin, from again from the Norse, Odin, the god Odin, he rode his eight-legged horse, Sleipnir, up and down the world tree, and that was how he traveled between different dimensions. He was notably the patron of the Norse shamans, at least most of them, including the berserkers, who are not normally thought of as shamans, but they are. Uh, similarly, the Greek, the Greek hero from, from classical Greece, uh, Bellerophon, he had to slay the monstrous chimera to reach his destiny, but before he could reach the chimera, he had to first learn to befriend and ride the flying pegasus. So again, this is a, this is a, shamanic, a shamanic learning, a shamanic training to be able to do this. Of course, there are many other examples of shamans and shamanic gods who, who ride on their flying steeds. That is a traditional way to uh, take a trip between dimensions. Now this ability to fly, as we see in the case of the yogic Vimana, which is a high mastery, it's not a small thing. It's not an easy thing to learn. It's not easy to tame Pegasus. If it were, everyone could be a shaman, right? Everyone would be flying. But even so, for all of its difficulty and, in fact, danger, right? This is known to be a dangerous kind of path. People are drawn to this challenge. People are drawn to it. What do I mean by this? I mean that today, even today, when we have technologies of airplanes and helicopters, anybody can fly now. People still remain very curious about how to train your dragon, right? As space flight advances today, as people start booking, booking trips to the moon, <laughs> maybe not to the moon, to the space station, people are still only getting more fascinated by those inner frontiers of consciousness through psychedelics, through meditation, through mysticism. That is, the physical sciences are unable to replace the sciences of human consciousness and human experience. It seems that part of us is always after this kind of self-transcendence, that is flights, not of the body, but of ecstasy. And if airplanes can't give this to us, we think maybe they can, but they can't. You know, maybe at first airplanes were exciting, but they could not, they could not really scratch this itch that is implied by the mythic images of flight. Well, airplanes can't give us to us, but maybe Santa's little helpers can. So we call out every year to Santa's little helpers, right? On Donner, on Blitzen. By the way, Donner is the Germanic name for the god Thor, the Norse god of thunder and lightning and Odin's son, who certainly knows the secrets of flight. So perhaps we are right to call out to Donner and such guides, even when we don't know what exactly we're calling. For where modern science can't go, maybe these ancient technologies still have something to teach us. Now, if one accepts this Amanita Muscaria association, then it becomes clear immediately that shamanic Santa wasn't the only one tripping. <laughs> For just like their wild reindeer ancestors, Rudolph and his pals are clearly flying high too. After all, Rudolph is the one with the big red magic mushroom nose. As for the gifts that Santa and his reindeer bring, much of Christmas, of course, has been commercialized. But we all know from countless Christmas movies and stories that the real gift of Christmas has nothing to do with these kind of packaged presents. The real gift of Santa Claus, that shroom-tripping, nut-throwing, rule-breaking elder, like in the example of the Kalash goat shaman, it's much more fundamental gift. It's the gift, of course, of the spirit of the season. We now call that holiday cheer. But it is really the gift of the renewal 
of imagination. That's called re-enchantment, which in a shamanic sense, in an ancient sense, is also the renewal of the world. But in order to talk about that, we have to talk about the figure at the heart of it, who I usually call the green man. And this is the topic, the green man, is the topic of my book, When Gob Was Green and Dancing. And as I note there, the green man, the figure of the green man, made a major resurgence in the West, in medieval Europe, where he reappeared in the art and the carvings of the Christian churches. This is, he's also called the foliate masks, and I'm sure you've seen him. He's the image of the man's face with the leaves and the vines coming out of it, pouring off of it. He's become a popular image. Now, it's interesting that he reappeared in the Christian churches because the Christians have not been, you know, the Puritans at least, were very much not fond of this horned goat god, right? Or antlered reindeer god. After all, he also becomes the, the base for the symbolism of the horned devil as well. But here he is in medieval Europe reappearing, carved into the Christian churches. And even before this, we can find an example like St. Francis of, of Assisi, who was the namesake and inspiration for the current Pope Francis, who is an exemplar of the kind of green man figure. He's a nature-loving Christian in touch with the animals, in touch with the plants, in touch with the old ways. And even before this, even before St. Francis, in the very early church, there was the Gnostics. And the Gnostics were originally uh, a major branch of Christianity who were considered themselves um, kind of the students and heirs of Christ himself, Christ as a spiritual teacher. And they represented a, a mystical and often very shamanic branch of early Christianity. Uh, Christendom, as it, be, as it shaped, would have, would have become a very different thing, would have been gone in a very different direction if the Gnostic tradition had not ultimately, over the course of some, hundreds, some couple hundred years, been driven underground by the more organized, fundamentalist, dogmatic Christian mainstream of the time, who were threatened by the Gnostic uh, individualism, mysticism, free thinking. In any case, whatever those Puritans of certain times have thought about the, the wild goat man, the reality of Christendom's relationship with magic and nature as a whole has been very complex. And perhaps nowhere is this complexity more on display than in the Christian relationship with Christmas. There's no doubt that the inquisitors of the medieval era would have been very displeased to see today's Christian celebration of a flying magic man and his magic reindeer. You know, at least they took off the old, the old shaman's horns, but the reindeer still have their antlers. <laughs> but the goat man, the goat man, he had to go. So caught between this, this need for enchantment, this human need for enchantment, and both the secular, we see this in contemporary atheism as well, and Christian concerns about superstition, about the dangers of superstitious thinking, we find a, a compromise in modern Christmas. The old symbols are changed. They're made gentler, they're made more kid-friendly. So while we still enjoy our, our Christmas nuts, and you might have seen Mommy kissing Santa Claus, the overtly sexual character of the old Father Christmas, who was traditionally something of a fertility symbol, he has been very much toned down. We can still note, however, that old Saint Nick you know, St. Nicholas may have been a Catholic bishop, but we all know now that Santa Claus is a very happily married man. Now, this, this sexual aspect of the traditional Father Christmas is not some random ancient perversion. We need to understand that it's actually a very important part of a sacred tradition in its original form. So I, I, I gave some examples earlier of the partnership between, for example, Parvati and Shiva, or Parvati and Pashupati, the older, the older version. And I talk about these kind of partnerships at great length in my book, When God Was Green and Dancing. But 
figures like the Winter King or the Oak King, even beyond these, these uh, you know, Shaivic examples, these figures of the Green Man, they never have existed alone. He doesn't stand alone. The, that, that leader of the wild hunt, we often lose track of this, but that leader of the wild hunt, he's not alone. He's not the king of winter. He's not just a king. It's a, it's a partnership tradition. From its very early origins and really universally, these days we often lose track of this, but traditionally speaking, the people knew this. This was universal. That this was a partnership tradition, and in that sense was always, in a sense, sexual. For in a mystical sense... This wasn't, just, this wasn't just a random partnership. It wasn't just a couple of gods. It was a particular sexual fertility between who we might call the earth goddess and the green man. And this fertility, this courtship, was understood pan-culturally across many traditions to be the ritual that renewed the life and the natural abundance of the earth specifically into the new year. That is, it renewed the abundance and the fertility for a new year. So this is why the green man is, at this time of year, the winter king. Because he is effectively the father of the next generation in time. And he's partnered with the mother of the next generation in time. In the most ancient historical records of this partnership, which we would find in early Sumerian Mesopotamia, the goddess and god of this dance of seasonal renewal, the renewal of abundance, they're the central figures of the whole mythic drama. They're the most important gods in the pantheon. They're the center. And theirs is a great and passionate romance. It's the original love story, which was really at the heart of the ancient Sumerian people's religion. Because this is really the story of life itself. It's the romantic, spiritual, and evolutionary story of how life finds its way forward in time, generation by generation, year by year, partnership by partnership. Even today, we know that Christmas romance is very much in vogue. How many Christmas movies are, are romances, right? It's a major genre. It was a major genre 5,000 years ago, too. So part of this cyclic process by which nature renews itself, by which life continues. Part of that process, part of that cycle, is understood to occur here in the depths of winter, which is when movement slows down, activity, busyness of life goes somewhat into hibernation. Now these days, these days with heating, indoor heating, and lighting, and all of the, all of the conveniences that we have, we can stay quite busy in the winter. Although we do maybe slow down somewhat, but in a traditional sense, in these wintry depths, this is a time when all of life, including the human community, gets much more introspective. And the emphasis of that traditional community shifts for a time from the daily work of life into a deeper kind of maintenance, which is the maintenance, we could say, of the collective soul. This is what many traditions, including that of the Jungian psychologists, have called the anima mundi, which is, means the soul of the world, or what Henri Corbin termed the, the mundus imaginalis, or the imagination of the world. That is to say, these are not just times of personal meditative thought, not just times of personal reflection. Rather, the traditional idea is that the entire world, in a sense, needs to together make a New Year's resolution, needs to together dream into the the revolution, the resolution, the restoration of its own dreaming depths. So this collective shift into a different kind of awareness in order to do this winter work has been called by many different names. It can be called distant time or mythic time or ritual time, all of which are the idea that it's a different kind of time, a different dimensionality of time that exists during this time of the year, to some extent. Mircea Eliade called this in illud tempus, which is Latin for the time that is now and always. It's a little bit like how 
when we have a dream from our childhood, right? Like when, we're, when we dream back to when we were children, even if we're growing old, that dream of our childhood, our childhood itself, is somehow still here in the present. Our childhood is in a way now and always. So almost in this way, there's a, the mythic, the mythic time is the universal childhood, uh, uh, that, that golden semi-fictional, semi-mythical, uh, you know, dimension of the past that is, that is more than a historical past. It's a psychological past. It's timeless. It's somehow still here in the present. And this timelessness, uh, or perhaps, perhaps all timeness, is part of what it means for something to really be mythic. It's this way that the mythic reality simultaneously touches on the past, the present, and the future with no distinction. Now, there's a long, I have a long quote here that's from anthropologist R.K. Nelson. And he's describing very specifically the rituals of the deep winter time among the Koyokan tribes of Alaska some of whom are still living in their traditional ways in the Alaskan uh, wilderness today. And as Nelson tells it, distant time stories were usually told by older people who had memorized the lengthy epics and could best interpret them. But children were also taught stories, simpler ones that they were encouraged to tell. Today's elders can recall the long evenings of their youth when distant time stories made the hours of the darkness pass easily. In those days, houses were lit by burning bear grease in a shallow bowl with a wick or by burning long wands of split wood one after another. Bear grease was scarce and the handheld wands were inconvenient. So in midwinter, the dwellings were often dark after twilight faded. Faced with long, wakeful hours in the blackness, people crawled into their warm beds and listened to the recounting of stories. The narratives were reserved for late fall and the first half of winter because they were tabooed after the days began lengthening. Not surprisingly, the teller finished each story by commenting that he or she had shortened the winter. Quote, I thought that winter had just begun but now I have chewed off a part of it. Distant stories also provide the Koyokan with a foundation for understanding the natural world and humanity's proper relationship to it. The narratives also provide an extensive code of proper behavior toward the environment and its resources. They contain many episodes showing that certain kinds of actions toward nature can have bad consequences, and these are taken as guidelines to follow today. Stories therefore serve as a medium for instructing young people in the traditional code and as an infallible standard of conduct for everyone. So one sees here with the Koyakon that there's another precursor to a certain aspect of Christmas and also to New Year. As we say at Christmas, you better not pout, you better not cry, you better not shout, I'm telling you why. <laughs> because the balance of the human community and its harmony with the natural world, as the Koyukan hold, depends on it, especially at this time of the year, this turn, as we renew this cycle of life. And this is because during the renewal time, we are touching mythos, which exists not only in the present, but in all time. For this reason, the way we act during this ritual renewal is understood to echo through all time, or at least until the next new year when we hope to get another chance to shape our echo. This reasoning makes sense if you understand that for traditional people, myth is not an invention of human culture. It's not a fantasy. It's just like imagination is not here considered to be the result of our human brain function or chemistry. Rather, what we experience as daily reality, as human reality, is more considered to be an emanation out of the more real world of myth. 
Now this might seem strange or superstitious or fantastical, but if we really understand it, it actually becomes a fairly reasonable idea, much more reasonable than modern people tend to assume. You know, this is more or less what the Greek philosopher Plato thought as well. Uh, and he's considered the father of the whole Western philosophical and, and, and even scientific project. We find some version of this idea that the mythic reality, in a way, is more real than our human reality. We find some version of it at the roots of most of the theology, not just of the shamanic or the pagan traditions, but also of the monotheistic traditions. Because the same idea we find in the Christian logos, we find the same idea in uh, Jewish uh, Kabbalah, we also find it in much of the esoteric Islamic mysticism, which is what Henri Corbin based his ideas, including the ideas of the Mundus Imaginalis, the imagination of the world. We find it all over these places, and we also find it in the mystical traditions of the East. So if one thinks of mythos not as some stories made up by human culture, but rather as the deeper patterns of the universe, which human cultures try to understand and communicate about through myth, then this idea that the mythic reality, this deeper patterning, is more real than our human experience or our historical reality starts to make sense. Because we all can see, if we study history, that societies rise and fall, cultures change, players, the characters in this great game change, but the basic rules and the forces of this universal play more or less continue. Now, the mythic imagination can then be considered as one way that humans try to see into and communicate about these fundamental forces, these trends of the universal cosmic trends. And in that sense, one can understand part of what Hillman meant when he called the imagination a mode of perception, a way of knowing. This gives a very different sense of the meaning of dreams and imagination, and it gives a radically different priority to the activity we do in dreams and imagination. For they are not only a way, as most modern science would hold, that we might personally process internally our experiences and our thinking, our reflection, our possibilities. They're also a way, in a traditional sense, that we tap into the essence of the world's shared reality and participate imaginally in the co-creation of this evolving play. Now this gets at a deeper understanding of what shamanic magic is. Because while one might use tricks to impress an audience like a magician, that's just sleight of hand. Now the real essence of magic is the power to create and transform reality in the ancient workshop of the universal imagination. And I think that's ultimately far more impressive to a mature mind than any literal flight or walking on water or light show could be. So this kind of creative imagination, the creative imagination that shapes one's own life but also participates in the shaping of the shared life of the world, that might be considered the particular mastery of the shaman. But among traditional people, it doesn't only belong to the shaman. It belongs to everyone, the young and the old, the beggars and the chiefs. There's really no political authority. There's no rank in the realms of imagination. There can't be. And that's part of why, something I mentioned previously, this idea of social leveling or social inversion, which throws the hierarchy up in the air, that's part of why it's included as entry into the collective ritual state, because there's a way that that shared dreaming has to be pure, experiential, real, authentic. It can't be a performance, and that means that it can't really be dependent on the rank that has been established in the past. It exists authentically in the present moment. So in this sense, everyone participates together in the true ritual of myth and dream. Everyone is together, all consciousness is together in Illud Tempus, in mythic time. 
even if you try to kick someone out of the circle, they're still participating. Because if you do that, you've just cast them in the role of the exile or the shadow or the enemy. So by the same token, no one can, can escape, no one can exit participation in this shared drama, which we could call cosmogony, which means the ongoing creation of the world. Any more than, one, than anyone can escape psychology itself. You can't escape psychology. You can't escape psyche, participation in the shared psyche. You can also think here of Buddhist and Hindu ideas like karma, which is to say we're all caught on this wheel of participation. And there's no exit unless you believe that the Buddhists do and some of the Hindus do, that there can be an exit at a certain, at a certain elevation of consciousness or a certain release but that's, that's another topic. For, for, for all intents and purposes, there's no exit from karma. There's no escape for the normal person from participation in this play. And we can't kick anyone out of it either. So for the Koyokan, like for many traditional people, this introverted time of winter is a time to dream into these enchanted shadows of these myth-filled lives, this myth-filled existence, and to do maintenance on the powerful imagination of the world, which is what the new year emerges from. Mircea Eliade, who was a great scholar of this topic, he described this in his book, The Myth of Eternal Return. He said, it's on this day that the fate of men is fixed for the whole year. It is also because the new year repeats the cosmogonic act that the 12 days between Christmas and Epiphany are still regarded today as the prefiguration of the 12 months of the year. For their part, the Indians of the Vedic era set apart the 12 days of midwinter as an image and replica of the year. So that is, this mythic time is taken as a direct kind of foreshadowing and a ritual that creates all of the normal human time that will follow. So even for us today, these winter holidays remain a particularly enchanted and mythic kind of time. Obviously, a great deal has changed culturally, but we still do encourage the imagination at this time of year. More so than any other, this is the time, perhaps more than any other, that even adults have the permission in the modern society to be a little fantastical, a little imaginative. We still have our stories and our rituals at this time of year, of magical beings like Santa Claus, of the elves, of the reindeer. And even we even have some parts of the old ritual through things like the New Year's resolution of seeking to imagine a rebalancing, a balanced shape for the next year of our lives. And for all of this, for most of us, our foremost guide for this activity at this time, while he has gone through many changes too, along with culture, he remains that same rowdy Father Christmas figure, still flying high with his ancient cry, turns out to be an ancient cry of ho, 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 brandishing his bells, creeping down chimneys, and spreading the magic of the year. So this brings us full circle back to the question we started with about whether or not Santa Claus is real. It's really a question about myth and dream and imagination. What would happen if we stopped imagining? You know, it's interesting how many films now have been made about the theft of Christmas or the incapacitation of Santa Claus. It's in the popular imagination in some way, this question. What if Santa couldn't bring his gifts? What if there was no one left to spread the spirit of Christmas? Mythic intuition is a built-in quality for humankind, human individuals and communities. It's even there in a people who are not raised with the education of a traditional oral mythic culture. For these days, the imagination's collective activity still continues in our modern lives. It can't, it can't not continue. 
For us, it is mostly in TV shows, in movies, when we're children, sometimes in storybooks. And so we maintain collectively a certain degree of what you might call mythic intelligence, even when we know that adults aren't supposed to take this stuff too seriously. It's from this kind of mythic intelligence, I think, that we somehow know intuitively that a world without Father Christmas would be in a funny kind of danger. And this remains our intuition no matter how secular we become. There's a sense we know somehow that a world that became too disenchanted might just be uninhabitable, unlivable. So with all of that in mind, how is it to return to this question? Is Santa Claus real? I think if we can challenge the assumptions of modern secularism, if we can understand that the contemporary secular view on myth and dream, that it's the exception, it's not the rule of human experience or worldviews, then this question of whether Santa Claus is real doesn't seem quite so childish anymore. So when children ask this, I think it's a mistake to feel that we are caught only between a hard truth and a fantastical lie. Rather, I, I think we should be hearing not just the question of, is Santa Claus real? But rather, we should be hearing, what is this reality thing? And that is a much more interesting question, because our ancestors clearly had a very different idea about the relationship between reality and imagination, reality and myth, reality and dream, than we do today. So perhaps we should be thinking again about how our ancestors told these stories, these persistent stories, these important stories, and also about why our ancestors told these stories, held these rituals. Before we dismiss it, we should probably try to understand it. Midwinter may be the ideal time for these kind of questions because it is the traditional time to enter into the imagination of the world, the mundus imaginalis. Also, historically, this is a fascinating time. It's a fascinating moment in which there seems to be a global culture shift happening. There's a way that culture seems to be opening up after many centuries trapped in a certain kind of materialism. There's a sense of non-dogmatic, non-sectarian, open spirituality that's currently on the rise. And connected to that, there seems to be a way that people as a whole are getting increasingly interested in the question of human experience. And I think part of this is reflected in the contemporary psychedelic renaissance, including the trends of legalization and normalization in many places. Now, if we buy the Amanita muscaria and otherwise the, the link that I have made between the Santa tradition and the ancient entheogenic traditions, well, we could say Santa Claus is coming to town. As a whole, the world is getting weirder. Weirder. But perhaps more accurately, it is only that we are opening up to its weirdness again. We're starting to remember how strange this trip is. And in that context, I, I think it's wise for us to now revisit some of the traditional knowledge about the interaction between consciousness and reality. Because old ideas about how imagination engages and co-creates reality might, in the end, turn out to be closer to the mark, more accurate, than this modern secular dismissal of the imaginary as something simply primitive or childish. After all, Santa Claus, in a sense, has been around a lot longer than 
any of us. And even longer still, if we trace him to some of these more ancient forms. So perhaps we should not see him as a little old lie told to children. Perhaps he is only a lie when we're lying about him. But that would be our confusion. That's an artifact of our belief system. It doesn't belong to Santa Claus. Because myths, in a traditional sense, are not lies. Just as imagination, in a traditional sense, is not simply for children. In the modern world, we go to school for book learning. We practice sports or go to the gym or yoga class or whatever for our physical health. And we even recognize now the importance of social intelligence and we learn social skills. But unlike traditional people, we have largely lost track of the fact that imaginal intelligence, what we might call dream intelligence, is another aspect of being human. It's another aspect of human potential. While shamans and artists may be recognized as masters of this kind of intelligence, it, it like all intelligence, it belongs, it is necessary to all of us. As the Koyukon people in Alaska would spin their, their winter tales all together, all together, even the children taking a turn with the shorter stories in the dark of those enchanted winter nights. So it is that dream intelligence is really a part of what we all need to develop in order to grow into full human beings. So this inner dream, part of why this is important is, important is because the, this inner dream and even this dream of the world, this mundus imaginalis, anima mundi, it plays itself out whether we pay attention to it or not, it cannot be forgotten out of existence any more than nature can. So this is the key, this is one of the key insights of depth psychologists like the Jungians, the, the insight that this dreaming reality has real substance, real effects, and that it unfolds Inevitably, in our relationships, in our strokes of genius and our personal tragedies, in our passions and our fears, in the irrational tides of our being. And just as the natural wilderness has always been humankind's partner in its evolution, its journey on earth, so this other kind of wilderness, this inner wilderness of dreaming, is also a kind of lifelong partner for humankind. Just like we can learn to care for the natural wilderness, we also must learn to care for this inner dream and learn to garden it, to take care of it. Or, just as with the natural wilderness, we will bear the consequences, the consequences of this. And that's something about which traditional shamans have always warned of what happens if you neglect the myth, if you neglect to take care of the gods, the spirits, the inner dream. Because when we don't care properly for this garden of the soul, it doesn't stay an inner dream, but it takes over our lives, it takes over our world, it makes itself known in that way. So aware of this, traditional people like the Koyukon have always told and imagined the important myths every year, and especially at midwinter, as part of this ritual care for the soul, the collective soul. What is real? What is real? We can't eat a dream, but it might feed us all our life. We can't be killed by a nightmare, but if we don't master our fears, they will destroy our potential. Visions and intuitions don't have any physical substance, but if we know which ones to pay attention to and are able to understand them, they can tell us things that we would have no other way of knowing. Important things sometimes. 
Now, is this, is this real? So one might say that the young child who asks, is Santa Claus real, isn't able to understand any of this. But I, I don't think that's true. I think children are, in a way, closer to understanding this than are most modern adults, because children are still close to the reality of their dreams and their fantasies. They live every day near to that kind of imaginal power. The child is only beginning to digest this modern shame in the imagination. And I think that shame that we have fully, that adults have generally fully digested, isn't it part of what we feel now when children, when our children especially, press us to this question of whether Santa is real? I think we feel ashamed, even if we're not aware of it, about this lie, about our foolishness, Shame carried over from our own foolishness as children. Shame that we're still being so childish with our children. So I think instead of this whole idea of lying or not lying, the sensible response here, the rational response, which is also the non-rational traditional response, is to be celebrating the very real power of myth and imagination. Very real. Santa Claus is a great spirit, a great dream. He's not immortal. He's not a solid matter. He doesn't have a mortal body normally, but he's, no, he's not less great for that. He's no less great for that. In fact, one might say that he is so great that at certain times of the year, he does take human form. He does have human body. I've seen it in shopping malls, in households, in schools. We've all seen Santa in human body, in full majesty, in full regalia. So is that a lie? Is it just a performance, an illusion? For most of the actors who dress up as Santa, as well as for most of the parents who watch, I'm sure that it is. It may be a lie for them, and it may be a lie for us, but it hasn't always been a lie. It doesn't have to be a lie. Because humans, it turns out, have always at times dressed up as spirits as part of ritual occasions. And this has been understood not as a performance, traditionally, not entirely, not as a lie, more as an invitation. For example, when the Kalash Goatman of the Hindu Kush would charge at the laughing and screaming villagers, trying to touch them with his horns, throwing them gifts, He's not acting exactly. He's not putting on an act exactly. Rather, he's making himself available for the dance and the magic of an ancient spirit. And we today, we still give Father Christmas this kind of opportunity to inhabit the physical world for a night or a week or a season, to interact with humans directly to bring his magic and his gifts not only into our dreams and our stories, but also through us into the physical world. Now, anthropologists would call this ritual inaction or ritual incorporation. When a, when, a, when a god takes the body of a human, when a human acts out the behavior of a god in ritual form, and in its most powerful examples, the actors themselves become very fully absorbed into these roles and indeed might experience a powerful presence that does not feel like their human self. Certainly the berserkers of old felt something like this on the battlefield. They became something that wasn't quite like their human selves, rather like powerful wild spirits were, were walking in their skins. And they had the fearsome reputations to prove that this wasn't just their fantasy, or that their fantasy had something of reality in it. And on the gentler side, I'm sure that many generous fathers who've dressed up as Santa Claus, giving the gift of their generosity to their children, have experienced a very potent flood within of a generosity that felt larger than them, of that Christmas spirit. So, as the Kalash people traditionally chanted, 
while the wild goat man danced in the new year? Ho, 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 ho. <laughs> and from me to you, happy holidays and holy days and happy new year. For traditional holidays are, of course, holy days. And holy days are days of ritual time or distant time in elude tempus, during which the imagination of the world is renewed. So ho, 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 and happy holy days. And I hope Father Christmas has brought you many gifts this year so that your holidays may be filled with good cheer and the magic that rejuvenates the soul. This has been The Depth Charge with Dr. Julian D. Michaels. If you have any questions or inquiries or ideas for further episodes of The Depth Charge, you can contact me through waketheimagination.com.